Ladies and gentlemen, the title this morning is, Is There No Balm in Gilead? And I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Many people have found comfort in the book of Jeremiah and in the character of Jeremiah. I very much would have liked to have known Jeremiah. I would sit at his feet and ask him many, many questions. For he was truly, truly a faithful, faithful prophet. Sawn in two, or stoned to death, we don't know. He was rejected, and outside of the Sermon on the Mount, he preached the greatest sermon ever preached, what is known as the Temple Sermon. One day when I'm older, I'm going to memorize it and shod myself with the clothes of a prophet, and I'm going to preach it like I believe he did standing in the temple. It is a sermon unlike any other, the great temple sermon. But here in Jeremiah verse 8, chapter 8, verse 22, he asked this question, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people gone up? As the grass withers and the flower fades, may the Word of God stand, yet stand in our hearts forever. Amen. I will explain to you in a moment Everywhere the balm of Gilead appears in the Bible. I will explain to you what it was for, how it was used, and then I will show you how it speaks of another. And I'm going to take you to how it is poured out in your favorite passage, John 3, 16. This message is to me. From God. I have to begin with broken people. This week, the greatest pastor that has ever lived in the modern era was laid to rest. I met him. I'll never forget it. It's not the greatest fame of my life, I want you to know that. It's Kelly and my kids and the journey. Boy, he, when he was elected pastor at First Baptist Church Atlanta, in one night, it went from 3,100 to 300, and he got a black eye out of it. Why did he stay? When God knew he would be divorced, Sarah Ann would leave him. He would lead the Southern Baptist Convention to its greatest heights in baptism and evangelism, and bring it back together. Have a ministry that is in 128 languages in every country except probably North Korea on the planet and has reached more people except the Bible itself. With a simple, plain message, trust God and leave the consequences to Him. I will miss Him. He's out of a broken home. Broken homes, listen to me carefully. This is the step on your toes portion. Broken homes are created by broken people. That is before we can offer broken homes, broken marriages, and broken churches the balm of Gilead. We need to be perfectly clear how they got broken. For all the pressures assaulting the family today, for all the allure of the world, for all the amusement of the world now that has entered the modern so-called church, for all of the temptations that the devil brings in the flesh, for all that is in our own sin nature, 
That is what destroys the home. We are so self-deluded because of this, and I want you to write it down. We do not realize how self-destructive we are. Beth, my beautiful, beautiful Mastador, who soon will be able to come to church with me. She's going to take up the offering or lick you to death. Um, She loves to chew on our bed. Not the mattress, the wood. So Kelly's going to be getting a new bed soon. Or I guess I'm going to be getting a new dog. But she loves to eat the wood. She's a woodpecker. She is very self-destructive. But any destruction that's ever happened in our house, whether it's hail damage or foundation cracks in the foundation or pipe leaks or anything like that, it has happened by the humans. Even all of the dog puke and everything else that's been on our carpet, all of that stuff, we've been the most self-destructive thing in our house because we're the broken ones. Wisdom tells us for this, and I'm going to use this in order, but I'm not trying to point one out over the other. A wise woman builds her house, the Bible says. But as the Bible says in Proverbs 14, it is a wife who uses her foolish hands that tear it down. Wives who are called to be keepers of the home in Titus chapter 2 but too often they're the ones that destroy the house. I have seen more ministries destroyed by men's wives than I have seen by men destroying it themselves. But listen to me. We don't talk about the sin of Eve. We talk about the sin of Adam. Proverbs highlights at least one way that man destroys not only the home and the church and the family, but destroys life itself. Folly, like a carnal woman beckoning him out in the street, offering him her pleasures of a moment, destroys him like he has been pierced in his liver or a bird caught in a snare. I have told Truett, Raising him up, I won't make him recite it now, but there's three things that will bring down a man faster than anything. Fame, fortune, and females. The Bible says that when a man brings down the household, he takes it the way of Sheol going into the chambers of death in Proverbs chapter 7 verse 27. But I will tell you this, no one does it on purpose. No one does it on purpose, not intentionally. They don't gleefully set out to destroy their home. No man who begins to allow his eye, begins to allow his eye to wander. It doesn't happen that way. He doesn't set up one day and determine that he's going to destroy his life with too much alcohol. He doesn't get up one day and decide he's going to go have some kind of illicit affair or he is going to go into the down low and try it out with a man. No. No one just self-consciously drops a bomb on his own house and starts to look for uh, pictures on the internet. I have told my parents of our churches, all of my ministry, you don't have to worry about your kids finding porn. It will find them. Don't give them the devices that it can be found on. He tells us after all in the Scripture, all of these things. We, we, what are we doing? What are we doing by doing these things? Ultimately, we're showing our lives that we believe that God is a liar. That's what our lives say. That's what this says. One man said to me this week, he thanked me for shaving my head. I said, why is that? He said, because you're the one person in our church that's showing us how to be in a church and hurt. And you're leading us to know it's okay. 
And yesterday when I prayed with these men, I said, it is to my shame I did it. And it's to the church's shame that I had to. We think God's a liar. God tells us not only what we're supposed to do, He tells us what not to do. And if you don't know between the difference, when in doubt, don't. Just don't. He tells us the fruit of, that there will be fruits of our action, that if we love our wives and our children, we will rejoice with them at the table and our children arrayed like olive plants in Psalm 128. There's some of us that know something about that. I just think how much more potential they would have if I loved her more. He also tells us that the unfaithful man hates himself and that our sin will find us out. This is the greatest lie. That, let, me, let me tell you something. I've got to make a word. I've got to give a shout out to the devil. And I've got to give a word of exhortation and correction. Did you know the devil cannot accuse you truthfully? Because there's not word he can tell, he can say that's the truth. So the devil cannot stand before God and accuse the brethren with truth. And he stands before God day and night accusing the brethren but with lies. He can't accuse me of being arrogant. Do you know why? Because it's the truth. He can't accuse me of being angry because it's the truth. So what does he do? He accuses me of the things that are not true. But why do I feel guilty about the arrogance and the anger? That's not the devil. That's the Spirit saying, Hey, you need to trim your sails. You're going to hear about this in a moment. The worst thing you can do to anybody is pile on the accusation. And if you go looking for bad in a person, you listen to me. Every divorce person that's come out of this church, it always started with one of them looking to find something. And they found something they were not expecting to find. Every one. God tells us to show God tells us and shows us the very pathway towards blessing and joy. And He says, rest in Me. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take My yoke upon you. That's mine, by the way. Church didn't buy that. That was given to me. Take My yoke. It's actually eight feet wide. Take My yoke upon you. It is easy. And learn from Me. For I am gentle. Our homes, however, can only begin to heal of their brokenness when they accept and understand its brokenness. When we face up to the reality of our sin, that the brokenness of our home is not because the devil has arrayed his army. Listen, there is not one of us in here worthy of his attention. He's going after Biden. He's going after Trump, Putin, the people that can nuke the world. He's not after us. Because he already knows something. We don't know enough of the word. We'll eat ourselves alive anyway. Church, the only army besides China shoots its own wounded. When we face up the reality that we are the, we of our own sin and we confess the kind of people we are, God in his goodness does something. He draws near. Would you imagine being somewhere like sitting on Lake Jenny, looking at the great, looking at the beautiful mountains, Jenny Lake, up in in uh, Canada, seeing the the mountain, or being out at Maroon Bells, or sitting there at Jackson Hole, looking at the Grand Teton. Some of you have been there, and you see the majestic moose walk by that's 16 feet tall and meaner than a junkyard dog, or Worse than the guy, the song I just heard about the other day says, Don't mess around with Jim. I said, That's a song for me. It says he was the dumbest guy in the town. I said, That song is not about me. 
I have too much pride. I'm more like Leroy Brown. And you look around and you see all of this and, you're, and you see the, the Tetons reflecting it there at the, Jackson, the lake there at Jackson Hole and it's a mirror image and all of a sudden, in the midst of all of it, the approach of God becomes palpable. When was the last time you felt that way? I kind of felt it a little bit this morning in Walmart. And I'm going to tell you, that was the last thing I was looking for. God will always dare draw near to you, brothers and sisters. Because he gives grace to the humble. Jean sent me a text this week ministering to me in her frank, San Antonio, Central Texas way, which is, she's from San Antonio, you know what that is, that's where the Tex meets the West, the Mex meets the Tex. It's now where the Mex is the Max. Said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. Well, that's right. God gives grace to the humble. But being grace, having being humble means sometimes, you know, we're in this together. Johnny McGregor has been trying to get me all week. I I I laid out my heart to him yesterday morning. He'll die with what I told him until you hear it from my mouth. And this was his response to me. I need you. And I want you to remember that. That's a whole lot different than I want you. That's a whole lot better and I'm glad. He said, I need you. But it took great humiliation to tell him what I told him. Nothing scandalous. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is why God has ordained the church to call us to faithfulness. To remind us each week through the word of God, the challenges of this is what we ought to do, this is what we shouldn't do, but in all things with prayer and thanksgiving, be anxious for nothing. It is the greatest sin, I think, that exists in our church is anxiety. And I'm not talking about anxiety that you've got to take medicine for. I'm just talking about being anxious because you don't know the answer. Anxious because you don't know this. Anxious because you don't know that. Worried about this or that. Listen. I am thankful for this. At least we get the right preaching of the Word. And through the right preaching of the Word, you get the wisdom of God. I'm grateful for that. My wife gave me an unusual compliment the other day, and I have to share it so she can be sitting here and hear me. She said, you have perfected teaching. I was like, I'm writing that down. Now it's on record. And she heard it. We don't only look back to Jesus dying for us on Calvary and see His broken body and His blood spilled for us. We need to look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb because on that cross was our husband. Christ was our husband. And one day we will be with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will enter eternity and we will taste all that is good. Too often, the reason churches are broken, one of the stories told this week or Saturday about Dr. Stanley's, at Dr. Stanley's funeral service was that he was in, when, when he went to First Baptist, he, was, he had been a senior pastor three times and went to First Baptist as the associate who was going to come up into a 3,000 as the new senior pastor. And he met with the deacons, and they were having a financial issue, and they didn't know how to solve it. And Dr. Stanley said these words, well, why don't we just pray about it? 
To which all of those deacons said, We don't pray about this. This is business. And one of those men, when the pastor had to resign in disgrace, when the church voted by standing publicly without secret ballot, 65 to 35, went up and punched him in the jaw in the pulpit. The reason that could happen was because that church had no discipline. And brothers and sisters, I have not taught you yet, but I'm going to soon. The reason for church discipline and an established church discipline is for first and foremost to keep the doctrine of the church pure. Where it is where you have you are not able to have a preacher that will cover wounds lightly and leave the broken broken because they will not discipline and because they fear men and the loss of their reputation or their civil repercussions. I remember the night we had the big meeting when I got chewed out for praying with my eyes open by a guy who apparently had his eyes open watching me pray with my eyes open. Mary Jo was standing right there. said, you have made this church a mockery in this community. Ha, it was long before I did. Because I did my research too. My failure was trying to fix it. And you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. And not one of you is the reason or responsibility for any of that. Yesterday I sat next to Johnny Lefwich at uh, Cracker Barrel. He called me out, stood up, brought his family over. Rick was there, introduced everybody. He said, James, I've missed you. If you've been sick, I haven't seen you in 30 days. I was thinking, I'm going to need to come find you. I truly believed him. That meant the world to me. But I would not be a man that would compromise. Still won't. Too often they call a shepherd of the flock to prove to be mere hirelings only to look after goats for the wolves to break in. We guard that door. Somebody came in this morning and y'all were talking to him. I don't know who he was. I don't know anything about it. But I was listening and I was ready and my my uh, spiritual pistol was cocked because what I was hearing, I was about to jump up and say, you need to move on. We guard the door. And we know everybody who leaves. Our calling then is this. Our calling is to set aside our worries and to seek the kingdom of God and His righteous. To be true shepherd to the people and to shepherd one another and guard the doors of the kingdom and when it is necessary offer up to each one the balm of Gilead. So since I have given you now the cause let me show you the proper action. What did Jeremiah mean when he said the balm there is balm in Gilead. The healing balm was used in, in medical solutions in ancient times. It was probably administered by a medicine man or a wise woman in the village to help cure any type of ailments. Oddly enough, they were not called doctors. The very first doctors and the mention of the word doctor is a term for a minister. That's where it came from. In England, they call their ministers doctors and they call their doctors mister. Present day doctors and nurses, they have reached new depths of healing and several illnesses and diseases, and over the course of time, they give those things to people to administer to themselves. Well, in the book of Jeremiah, there's one balm in particular that's mentioned. It's this balm of Gilead that you see here. And he's asking God why he has not supplied this treasure, treasured balm to help the healing of his people. 
and their ways. And oddly enough, it will be for the very reasons I've spent the last 30 minutes on the introduction. The balm is a metaphor of healing, liniment, but also of one who can save another from a disastrous fate. So why is Gilead then considered a place where healing can happen then? Well, to start with, to under, you have to understand what the balm is. The balm comes from several herbs of the mint family of plants, so you need to eat more peppermints. It's used in, in Andes mints, I'm sure. It's used in everything from food to alcohol to perfume to fruit drinks. In regard to the balm of Gilead, it is, re, it is related to this, the balsam poplar, P-O-P-L-A-R. Comophora apobalamus. Apobalsamum. Comifora apobalsamum. B-O-L-O-G-N-A. And is considered to be myrrh-like, a resin chemical found in the Arabian Peninsula, especially in ancient Palestine, east of the Jordan River. It was used for medicine. The poplar species is here in America, and we use it for corn syrup. So we use it to kill us. Over there, they use it to heal them. The balm was known to have other things like licorice and honey for solving chest congestion, to oil and lard for bruising, swelling, damaged skin, inflammation, blah, 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 blah. It's great for sunburns. And some ancient historians say that the Queen of Sheba gave the gift of this balm to King Solomon. Well, what do we know about it in the Bible? Well, there are mentions of the balm of Gilead in Genesis. I didn't even know that. Within the story of Joseph, as caravan Joseph was sold, was sold to by his brothers, were from Gilead carrying items such as balm to Egypt. Genesis 37, 25. The balm of Gilead makes another appearance in Joseph's story in Genesis 43, verse 11. When Israel, Jacob, tells his son to travel back to jo jo Joseph, unrecognized by his brothers, bring the finest goods, one of them being a balm, so he would give them that during the famine. Why does Jeremiah ask them the question, is there no balm in Gilead? Well, here it is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, as the prophet was chosen of God to warn the people of Judah that their city, Jerusalem, would be taken over if they didn't repent of their ways and return to God. If they did not confess their brokenness. And he appointed the people of Judah, his own people, the message. Jeremiah struggled for decades to convince them to repent, even with weeping and tears. And is why he is known as the weeping prophet in his sheer perseverance that he set his face like flint and continued to preach to his own execution. In chapter 8 in Jeremiah, sharing these words, the Lord of his people becomes more emotional. He asks in verse 19, look at the words with me. He says this, Behold the sound, the cry of the daughter of my people from the distant land. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not with her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with foreign idols? Over here in verse 22, then he says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician? And he mentions again the balm of Gilead is part of instruction from God over here in Jeremiah 46. Just go look at it with me real quick. Verse 11, and it says these words. Oh, go up to Gilead and obtain balm. O virgin daughters of Egypt, in vain have you multiplied remedies. There is no healing for you. Go up to Gilead for the balm. When was the last time you went up to Gilead? 
Because Gilead's for you. It has another name. Calvary. Stained by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Go up to Gilead and obtain the balm. Jeremiah, no doubt, was aware of Gilead's history. God never represents just one thing or wisdom in one period. If He did, then the Bible would have lost its meaning. He uses it many different times, past, present, and future. But at any rate, we think about this idea of this healing balm and what it could be. One that would be the only thing that could save them from their... Listen to me that could save them from their incurable condition. And their incurable condition is they would not believe God is not a liar. So they live in their brokenness and with their own hands. They tear down their homes, they tear down their temples, and they tear down their culture. Is that not happening today? Is America going to be judged because of the lost? America is not going to be judged by the... Is, God is not going to judge the church either. America is going to receive what she deserves. We have the call. Go to Gilead! We have the call. Because each one of us in Christ know of the time when the healing vapors of that bomb went in our nose and our mouth and rendered into us such a peace and a tranquility like the Vicks that I've smeared on the side of my CPAP machine where it just totally floods my soul. Think about Rick and Ronnie's mama. I thought maybe I should eat it. Didn't y'all have to eat Vicks? Yeah. Didn't seem to hurt you. But what else does this balm represent? Listen to me. The balm represents a sacrificial love. That there's one willing to sacrifice, to to accept a sacrifice for your blunders. Now in that context... It was the sheep, the Passover lamb. God provided that. And in those times, they had those days. But do you realize in the New Testament time, they were about to end those days? Because that last Palm Sunday was going to be the last time there was going to be a Passover. And it was on that Palm Sunday that the balm of Gilead began to walk down from the Garden of Gethsemane towards the Kidron Valley, towards the Lion Gate, only to enter at the Sheep Gate. Not the big formal gate, but the Sheep Gate, the gate where they take the sacrificial lambs. I don't know why Jesus did that, but it kind of makes sense to me. It's the gate you go through now, and when I take you there, you'll go through it. You can go, meh, no bad. Goats go, man. And the very people that had their palm fronds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the balm of Gilead. Here he comes were the ones just five days later saying, crucify him. And nailed him to a tree. Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Be encouraged now with what I've told you and listen with joy. God loved the world so much He gave His only begotten Son. Brothers and sisters, Sisters, 
you hear the song. It's not in this hymn book, and I couldn't find my Baptist one this morning, then I found it. There is a, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. Well, what's that fountain called? The fountain of mercy. The fountain of mercy. Abraham's the fountain of faith. Augustine's the fountain of, of uh, theology. Jesus Christ's the fountain of mercy. I want you to get this, and you're going to get the best theology, theology class lesson in three minutes that you ever had. You remember this? Because every time I pray after this Sunday that He desires all men to be saved, you will, from what I'm about to show you, from the fountain of mercy, you're going to understand why we can pray that in all or not. Write down number one. The first, first, the original fountain of our mercies is God's love. Write it down. The original fountain of our mercies is God's love. This love is broken into three parts. The first one is benevolent. Write down the word benevolent. Benevolent love is His desire and purpose to save and do good. Benevolent is the desire and purpose to do good. So His gracious purpose to joke Joseph found in Romans 9.13 is called love. It is where he says, It is Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Then there is his number two under this, the beneficent love. B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-T. Love. The beneficent love is his actual doing good to those whom he loves. This is where God actually does the love, doing good to those He loves. People say they love you, but it's like, let me put it in a term of Larry Sullivan. It's one thing to tell your mama you love her. It's a whole lot other thing to go see her. It is the bestowing of the effects of His love upon us. So beneficent love is the result of His benevolent love. Beneficent love and benevolent love of God is on every human being that has ever lived, is living, or will live. This is the reason He says it rains on the good and the bad. It is His benevolent and beneficent love. But here is the third part. Number three, the complacent love. Complacent, C-O-M-P-L-A-C-E-N-T. The complacent love. Listen to this. It, it, just listen, don't write it down. I'll send it to you. Just listen to this. Listen how beautiful this is. God's complacent love is His delight and satisfaction in beholding the fruit of the grace which He first intended for us benevolently and then actually bestowed upon us beneficently. God's complacent love has been given to those who have, who will, and are genuinely called His own who savingly believe for the purpose of giving Him joy to see the fruit produced in their life by the grace that He has willed love upon them and then acted upon them by sacrificing His Son. Wonderful, marvelous, matchless grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. God did it because He looks at you and He said, you are not the sum of your failures. I'm not looking for what is not done. I'm looking at the fruit that My grace has produced in you. Not your effort that's produced in you. My Son's produced in you because I love you and I've proven it to you because I gave you a faith you can't hold on but one that can't let go of you. You know what that is? 
That's a balm to my soul. I have never tried to disqualify myself from the ministry. But I have sure tried to enable myself from it. And when I was reading about what that messed up young man that's now a girl, whose life, by the way, you know who the greatest victim in that whole thing is? It's not Bud Anheuser-Busch, it's him. He's suffering. I wouldn't be surprised if he commits suicide. They say, well, that's, he deserves it. Well, you know what? If you believe that, get out. Because I'm going to tell you what, I want to talk to a guy like that. I want to take him to Gilead. God's beneficent love in view in our verse here is the fountain of which God's absolute, benevolent, merciful love flowed on His beneficent Christ to lead to His complacent love which is the fruit of grace in your life. To heal you. But not only that, to let you know that in the midst of of the darkest, deepest valleys. You do not have to be alone. You do not have to lay down. And you do not have to die. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shout of death. Oh, you feel alone. But you are not alone. For there is one at work in you that is greater than he that is in the world. And the one who has who gave His life for the Father's pleasure to see the fruits of the grace wrought in your life will not let you finally fall. The reason is, is because if you are righteous in Christ, you'll stand up and keep going. Second, the mercy flowing out of this fountain is Christ. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 72. He is the marrow, the kernel, the substance of all other mercies. The love is expressed with a double emphasis. It said, how did God love the world? It said, so love the world. Someone asks you this question. How does God love the world? This is your answer. How does God love the world? You say, so loved it. We mean so. So is a powerful two-letter word. So loved it. What do you mean so loved it? Because He gave His only begotten Son. It'd be one thing to give a couple of, a son if you had a couple of them. But this is an inexpressible act of love. You don't, you don't have that. This is it. And you realize it didn't take God faith, but you realize if Jesus messed up at one point, He wouldn't fail to be God's Son. But you and I would never be the sons and daughters of God. Third, the object of, the, of God's love in this world, this respects God's elect in the world, and that is those who will believe, the whosoever will. The term world simply is used to represent the whosoever will. Fourth, the mercy flows to us freely and spontaneously because it says here He gave His Son. Christ freely gave Himself in Galatians 2.20 it says, And the Father gave Christ out of the good will to us, and Christ as willingly gave Himself to us. So let me give you a doctrinal statement to write down and I'm wrapping up. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to remember this. The gift of Christ is the highest and the fullest manifestation. The gift of Christ is the highest. If, if Benny Hinn was here, or any of those weirdos were here, well, I wouldn't be. They couldn't, they couldn't hear the name Jesus, the authentic one. The Christ, the gift of Christ in the highest and fullest manifestation of God's love for sinners that was ever made. You're getting healed of leprosy, of your blindness, financial poverty, of all those things, nothing. The highest and fullest manifestation of God's love for sinners was the gift of Jesus Christ. And we tread Him underfoot by bringing up the past in the lives of His children. Namely, ourselves. 
And here in His love, 1 John 1, 4.10, it says, Here in His love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it all hinges, but God commended His love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I want you just to hear this. I'm not going to talk about the nature of it, but I'm just going to close with the value of it. I want to show you the value of this balm of Gilead. The most expensive cologne I think a man can buy right now is a Creed Adventix. For 3.7 ounces, it's like $800. That's some expensive parfum. It ain't no ode to toilet, I can tell you that. It's sure a whole lot more expensive than Old Spice, which is good enough for me. How is this gift to be valued in your life? First, I want you to write this down. These are questions I have written myself. How near and dear do I understand Christ was to the Father? How near and dear do I understand Christ was to the Father? He was His only Son, the Son of His love. He was the darling of His soul, the image of His person, and the brightness of His glory. And in parting with Christ, He parted with His dear Son. When King Charles spoke at the funeral of his mother, he said, Your Majesty, my dear mummy, My dear son, our dearest children are but strangers to us compared to the unspeakable nearness Jesus Christ is to his Father. And this son, so close, has made you just as close through his blood. Number two, why'd the Father give him? He gave him to die on the cross. But not just to be dying on the cross, to make a curse out of him. To make him scorned and ridiculed. To endure an unparalleled suffering that no human has ever experienced. The total forsaking of God. It breaks our hearts to see our children striving in the pains of death. I hope I don't ever see it. But the father beheld his son struggling upon the agonies and had every power to stop it and to end it. He saw him falling to the ground, groveling in the dust and sweating in the blood. He saw the nails being pierced into his hands. He heard the rendering cry, Remove the cup from me. Forgive them for what they do. They don't know why they're doing and ultimately had to hear the cry of dereliction. Why, God, have you forsaken me? Knowing he knew the answer and knowing his son knew the answer. Knowing that the ones for whom would know the answer would never understand it. Third, we need to consider that in giving Christ, the Father gave the richest jewel of his treasure. Some of you look at a cloud and all you see is the sky. You look at, that's how you look at your problems. You look up in the sky, there's a cloud in the sky and everything else is blue. You look at the cloud and you say, that's my problem. That's the sky. That's a terrible way to live your life. It's the way you live it. cannot see the forest from the tree, Mama used to say. God saw you in the midst of all that He has made and pronounced good. And He said, I'm going to give that creation one more thing. 
I'm going to give it my crown jewel. And by doing it, he bestowed mercy upon mercy. The most precious thing found in heaven and the most precious thing that could ever be found on the earth. He didn't give it to the rich. He didn't give it to the perfect. He didn't give it to the well. He didn't give it to the wise. He gave it to the poor sinner. He gave it to his enemy. How marvelous. How wonderful. A great, lovely, and excellent as his son was. He did not account him too good to bestow him upon us. There are some things that you all own. You will not, and rightly so, bestow upon anyone else. It's too valuable. It's too costly. It's too memorable. It's priceless. I'm not giving my keys to my truck to care grace. But God gave the most precious thing and He didn't even create it. It was the most precious thing. And He gave it to you. And it's not so that you could sit there and suffer alone, waller in your own shame, live in the past of broken promises, broken hearts, broken words, broken vows, of broken memories. He gave it to you to give you comfort, to bring peace and calm in your heart, in your mind, and in your hands. What manner of love is this? Fourth, we must consider on whom he bestowed it. He bestowed it on his enemies. Who would part with his son for the sake of his enemy? An American. We'll send him to war for the freedom of other men. We're talking about the freedom of a man's soul. Fifth, how freely the gift came from the Father. It wasn't forced out of his hand. It wasn't pried out. It was neither desired nor was it deserved. It was delivered. Why? Eternal love. Souls exceedingly precious in the sight of God, he gives his only son of his bosom. It's a ransom. As a ransom. That speaks of high, how value, highly valuable you are. One of the strongest rebukes I ever got from Roy Fish was when I told him I was nothing. And I mean, he rose up in that 90-year-old body and got right in the middle of me like a sophomore in Texas A&M Corps of Cadets, and he basically whooped me one end and down the other because I had offended God. Being spiritual is not being self-pitiful. It is the most unattractive, unadult, uneducated, non-effort requiring juvenile behavior a person can do. And I personally hate it. You were not esteemed with corruptible things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're so highly favored. 
And yet the balm of Gilead is there. But you won't go up Calvary's mountain. You won't run to Gilead. You'll say, ah, he's too busy. There's too much going on. You, you, look, look at me. You're not Catholics. You don't need a priest. You don't need the saints. You don't need Mary. You have Christ. And we prayed this morning He would anoint the Word of God that the glory of God's power might be shown mightily and it has. But if you get up here and you walk out on that curb and start belly aching and griping, you missed it. Go out there and put a smile on someone's face. Tell them, so! What do you mean so? So loved! What do you mean so loved? God so loved! Oh, God could never love a person like me. Let me tell you, He can. And how He already does. And use the word benevolent and beneficent. And if they're still standing, you'll get them to the other word that I can't remember. Ladies and gentlemen, we may rightly expect to experience all temporal mercies from Him, no matter what, but the greatest evil is manifested. I wanted, I'm closing. The greatest evil... It, you know what? Today, I don't care about what time it is. The greatest evil is manifested in despising, slighting, and rejecting Christ. Not in the lost, but in the saved. It is sad to abuse the love of God manifested in the lowest gifts of providence, but to slight the richest discoveries of it is the Father's gift of His Son is absolutely astonishing. As Carl Sagan would say in his TV show Cosmos, the billions and billions of stars, out of all of those things, there is God's children. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to feel guilty this morning, then I'll give you a reason to. And it's not from the devil, because it's the truth. If you are not astonished by the love of Christ for you, and you've learned all you think you can learn about it, you are as guilty as guilty can be. For you have committed the greatest of treasons. And that is why there was no balm in Gilead. God sent the people of Jerusalem, Jeremiah, a faithful prophet, a broken, weak crybaby, the one thing he had, he had a strong back. He had a spine, it wasn't yellow. And he told them the truth so much that they imprisoned him. They tried to bury him. They tried to kill him. Finally, they, halt, they just hauled him out of the country. And God, the infinite God's grace, ceased with his patience, having run out. You have trampled underfoot my word. And so what did he do? Nebuchadnezzar comes and blows him off the earth. And Jeremiah dies probably wondering, was it worth it? He knows now. But the reason you're asking the question, why is there no balm in Gilead? Is because it's not because the devil's assailing you. It's because you've forgotten where to go. You've forgotten where to look. You've forgotten how much you're worth. You've forgotten the value you are to Him. All of this is in the Bible. You say, I don't know it's in the Bible it's because you don't read it like I read it. You weren't called to teach it either. Brothers and sisters, leave with this. Purposely go here remembering the benevolent, 
beneficent and complacent love of God for you. He willed to love you. He acted on His will and loved you. And you have what many don't. You have God's absolute attention looking upon your life to see the fruit that the grace in you, the hope of glory, produces as you wash continually in His balm of Gilead. May God add His blessings to the preaching of the Word.